Hello, hello, welcome to Hear Her Sports. I'm host and producer Elizabeth Emery. Once again, I have a wonderful female athlete to introduce this week. With me here is Jen Gorecki, CEO of Coalition Snow, a woman-founded ski and snowboard company. Jen is a self-described workaholic, so is involved in a whole bunch of other big projects, including creating the excellent new print magazine, Sizu. But I was especially excited to get Jen on the show to find out more about selling quality women's equipment versus pinking down something designed and made for by men. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, you have heard me talk about my quest for wide cycling shoes, and I mention it again in this episode. It's interesting, this time it struck me while editing that my feet aren't really that small, and yet I'm nearly apologizing for needing something special. My feet are seven and a half, small for a man, of course, but pretty average for a woman. So stay tuned to hear from Jen about why she started Coalition and the impact of providing excellent gear for sporty women right from the get-go. Jen and I also talked about being kind, speaking up, and dealing with making mistakes. Jen was amazing to work with getting the show together, and I love her generous spirit of supporting other women. So thank you to her, and let's get started. Well, I'm so excited to have you here, so welcome, and um, I'm expecting a lively chat, so I had my coffee. Oh, good. You might have also needed to have a little bit of bourbon, but that's okay. (laughs) Well, a little bit later. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Could you start by introducing yourself? Because you do so many things, so I'm excited to hear how you describe yourself. Oh, wow. Yeah. So um, my name is Jen Gorecki. I am the CEO of Coalition Snow. We are a women-founded ski and snowboard company. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Sisu Magazine, uh, which is a quarterly print magazine whose mission is to uncover the untold stories of the outdoors. In my spare time, I have a podcast called Juicy Bits that I record uh, with my friend Jillian. And I also have a business in Kenya called Zawadisha that is also another spare time um, operation because I have an entire team of Kenyan women who operate it. And then I love to cycle and snowboard and carb load and <laughs> drink bourbon and bourbon, wine. Bourbon. Yes. Yeah. And that's, yeah, that's, that's me. Excellent. And you know, because you started with all those business things, I'm going to jump to my business questions. And one of my first, and I think pretty obvious questions is how are you balancing all of those things? That's a really good question. I don't know (laughs) the answer to that. Um, I mean, well, obviously, there's teams behind everything. So as I mentioned, the business that I have in Kenya, I'm not responsible for the day-to-day operations. So it's something that I founded, and it's something that I still support. But there's a team of Kenyan women who who run it. Um, Just as with Coalition and with Sisu, I'm working with my work wife, Lauren Bello Okerman. Um, so there's there's other people involved. So that's an important thing to note. I also would definitely consider myself a workaholic. I love my work. Uh, I get to like a lot of my leisure time and my activity time is actually wrapped up into my work because I work in the outdoor industry. So it's not crazy for me to be cycling and also be on a phone call or be on a chairlift and be having a meeting. And so I'm, I'm pretty fortunate in the sense that a lot of things that people do um, on the weekends or do away from work is actually part of my, my work. And I think that that helps to balance things out a little bit. Um, and then honestly, I've made purposeful life decisions. Like I'm child free. I don't have children. And that 
you know, frees up an incredible amount of time each day that I get to dedicate toward other things. Um, and so I think, you know, both the decisions I've made in my life and then also, you know, the industries that I'm in and these, these teams help, help me to be able to do, um, quite, quite a bit. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is, uh, being busy, sort of just filling your time with, I don't know, like answering emails and crap like that versus getting actually really good work done. Are you good at balancing that kind of stuff? I am. I'll tell you, most people wait for at least two weeks to get an email response from me. So I scan, I'll scan an email. And if it's not timely, I move on to things that actually need to get done and I keep a running list and I prioritize every day what needs to get done and then what can get bumped. So I'm, I would say I'm very highly organized and, uh, I'm, I'm hyper aware of, of how to prioritize. And I do, I carve out time every day for like, this is the amount of time. Like I'm going to put time aside to focus on sales. I'm going to put time aside to, you know, I, I will put maybe an hour aside to spend on, on emails, but I don't, I don't keep email open all day. I don't let that distract me. I don't receive notifications on my phone for anything. Um, and I will spend time like really honing in on what projects need to get done. Right. That's good. I'm, I'm less good at that. I got to say, mm. <laughs> <laughs> what's been difficult in your business life? Um, well, I think for so many um, small business owners or, you know, people who are launching any sort of new venture, probably the most difficult thing is cash flow. Like literally manage, like working on your financials day in and day out and understanding not only what your cash flow is currently, because that's pretty easy when you just look at the bank, but also projecting that out over time and the amount of stress um, that that causes me is pretty significant. And it's, for us, it's a little bit unique in the ski and snowboard world and snow sports because when you're on the product side of things, specifically on the hard goods side, now is the time of year. So, you know, today's um, April 11th and, and now's the time of year where we're placing a really significant order with our man, our manufacturer and we are going to wire an incredible amount of money. But we won't be able to realize any sales from that until October. And that is that um, that is challenging. And so having this seasonal snow sports hard goods business that's so capital intensive, um, and you have a sales cycle that really is about three to four months of of the year, that's hard. Right. Hard. Right. And you don't have a summer line of any kind, so there's nothing to no, make up for it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really, the the magazine is definitely the main thing that we have going on in in the summer, and it and it helps to mitigate it a little bit. And then we do have some apparel and accessories that we sell, but it's um, it's very it's a very different scale when you think about you know how many magazines or how many t-shirts do you have to sell versus like when you're making one sale of a pair of skis. It's just a fundamentally different model and scale, and um, yeah. Right. And yeah. Yeah. There's a lot I want to talk about because um, I think your magazine, I, I just recently finished reading the second issue. It's really mm. terrific. It's so good. It, it's fun and it's serious, but it also has some really deep stuff in it, but mm -hmm. it's also manageable. I think that's exciting. Thank you. Yeah. That's what we were going for. So it's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. Um, yeah. So let's get to skis because one of the real reasons I wanted to talk to you was... Um, 
you know, you're making women-specific equipment. So let's talk about the reasoning behind making women's goods, women's gear, women's equipment, clothing. Like, why did mm -hmm. you start Coalition? Well, you know, we've all been skiing and snowboarding for more than 20 years and have understood that the offerings uh, available to women were um, – subpar, um, you know, women do not have the same choices when it comes to their equipment as men do. Um, so you have to look, look harder, search more, be more discerning when it comes to finding something that would really suit you. And for so long, the you know, the, the standard approach to designing women's equipment was this shrink it and pink it mentality. So you take a men's product, you shrink it, you soften it, you put pink graphics on it, and voila, you have a woman's product. Well, that doesn't, it actually doesn't work. Um, women need something that's actually as robust as men. Um, and while there's an argument for unisex equipment, because really at the end of the day, you should be on something that suits your skier um, ability, your preferences of terrain, your height, your weight, like that's really what should go into determining a, a like what ski you would be on. But, you know, there's so much more than just being on a plank of wood, right? Like there's this whole, like the whole social mission and the whole social side to it of we have an industry that it has historically been run by men. Um, and it's men who own the companies and men who design the skis and men who market. And, and so, you know, not only feeling that we believe women deserve the very best equipment, just as good as what men get. We also saw this as an opportunity to really push the boundaries in an industry and, and carve out leadership and executive positions for women in an industry that has traditionally marginalized us. Um, so there was definitely the equipment side, but then also the social Im impact side of it. And, um, you know, it was, when looking at wanting to start coalition, there was definitely a void in the market. So that from a business standpoint, like you find a problem and you solve for it. And that's exactly what we did. And we were able to solve for it both on sort of like a technical side as being women and, and, and only investing in women's products and investing 100% of our resources into creating um, products for people like us, and then also understanding the greater societal implications for the work that we're doing. So I'm a cyclist, and we have the shrink it and pink it problem also. Yeah. And I think about shoes a lot because I have very small feet, but I have very mm -hmm. wide feet, and it's really hard. And I've heard other women talk about it's really hard to find good, high-quality shoes. But I was doing research to talk to you, and a guy I know who sells skis, he's a rep, said... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, women don't spend as much money on equipment. And it twinged me because I'm not sure I believe that. And I just wanted to hear what your thought about that was. I would probably have to agree <laughs> with him. <laughs> I would probably have to agree with him. So, and this, this goes into like why, why we think, uh, why we believe in our company and, and what it is we're putting out out there. Women don't spend as much on equipment because they don't believe they deserve it. Hmm. And so you you obviously have what I would call like core, um, you know, like a, a core user, whether that be in cycling or skiing of, of women who absolutely 
want the the very best and they will um, you know buy buy the exact right tool for the job. They will do that. But women a lot of times just think like, oh, I shouldn't be spending that money on myself or I don't um, I don't need to have the very best I can do with less, I can do without. Just sort of like typical like woman bullshit right. that we do to ourselves. <laughs> We're like, we don't actually think that we deserve anything good. Right. And then, and then I think that the other part of it as well is that, um, women in particular have gotten really focused on this idea of any sort of leisure should be fitness based. And so when we look at our incredibly demanding lives and how much time do we actually have to like carve out in any given day or any given week to recreate, if we're not equating that with also losing weight or being fit and all that other, you know, things that society tells us that we should be doing, um, that's where I think women end up spending some of their, their money. So they'll have the membership at the gym, but they're not going to buy the pair of skis. And and I think that there's just this, there's this idea of like, when do we just get to have fun? Um, when do we get to be outside and recreate? Because it's, it's fun and it um, soothes the soul. And it's not necessarily about having flat abs and a tight ass. Um, and then also like, when do we tell ourselves that we do deserve nice things? But I also wonder, you know, like you were talking about how your skis are made for more advanced skiers and there wasn't, there weren't those kind of skis available to women in the past. So somebody going to buy skis, a woman going to buy skis might not think that it's worth spending the extra money because there's nothing there that, that fits her bill or she's tried something that's been marketed as a good ski, but it's really not. So she doesn't know the joy of being on really incredible equipment. Right. So, but this, we don't make skis for advanced skiers. We, we do, but we, we don't only make skis for advanced skiers. We actually make skis for skiers. We make snowboards for snow, snowboarders. You don't have to be advanced or expert to be on our equipment. You don't have to be advanced or expert to demand to have something that's exceptional, right? So um, if you are a beginner or an intermediate, why would you have something that doesn't help you progress in the sport? Right. And that's that's what that's what so much of women's equipment is because it's shortened and softened and pinked down. You actually have a tool that will not help you evolve. Like you will not become a better skier if you're on something that's short and soft. It's actually your gear is holding you ho holding you back. So when we came into to the marketplace, what we said was that like all women deserve the very best and you deserve something that's going to help you advance in the sport and that's going to support you in having fun. And those short, soft pink sticks that are going to chatter and make you feel totally out of control and never allow you to even progress, like you're not, you're going to lack the confidence and you're going to not have fun. And so, so while we do make equipment, like we have skis that, you know, in a 180 length that, um, are definitely for expert skiers. We also have skis that are in a 157 that are really designed for people who are maybe, um, getting in, into the sport. But I, yeah, so I, I think that there's, it doesn't matter if you're an expert or not. Um, if there's something that you love and there's something that you want to be good at, like you should have, I, mean, I just always go back to this notion. You should have the right tool for the job. Right. I wonder too, if people are, or women are quitting because they're not enjoying it because they're not on the right equipment for the job. 
Oh, for sure. Like if you end up on a shitty pair of skis and you feel out of control, why would you ever go do it again? Right. You wouldn't. Right. Because because that's the thing. Like we actually like we don't need to suffer more. <laughs> like <laughs> like Sign me up for that experience that's going to make me feel awful about myself. No thanks. But that's what happens when you're on, like, ill, ill-fitting ill gear, right? Right. And everyone else is having fun. Right. And then you just feel like a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, okay, so let's talk about some of the the sort of the reality of selling these skis. Because you've recently been writing about how after five years there are very few or not even one outdoor shop independent shop in the country that carries you. That's correct. Yeah. Why is that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. <laughs> uh, how much time do we have here? So, um, okay. So just from a business perspective, um, independent, small specialty retail stores, I'm, I'm, ta- I'm not talking about like REI or Evo or back. I'm talking about like the independently owned, um, smaller local shops. They're very risk adverse. And they're risk adverse from a business perspective because they don't have a lot of extra capital. And so to purchase inventory that may not sell is going to be difficult for for them, right? So from a business standpoint, they are likely going to go with the brands that everybody knows about and that they don't really have to work that hard to sell. The challenge in that is that you are just perpetuating the good old boys club, right? Um, your sales reps who are men don't have to learn about women specific, or they don't have to learn about the newer companies that are emerging that are female founded. Um, they don't have to educate themselves on the evolution of the sport or, um, or what's happening in, in society. They can just status quo the shit out of it. So that's where like you understand like, okay, well, you may not be making a gendered decision and that you're not discriminating against us as women because you're not carrying our skis. But all the, all the other layers that go into it are actually because you um, aren't actually committed to supporting female-founded companies because you're not going to put the time in to educate yourselves, to understand how this equipment might be different than what you already offer. Your sales team doesn't have the working, um, doesn't have the the language to even be able to communicate to their customers. Um, and so that's definitely like, that's part of the issue. Um, I would say also like for us in particular, we have scared cisgendered white men. They tend to, they are a little bit afraid of us um, just because we show up in the world in a really bold way and apologetically. And that intimidates men. And we all know that when you intimidate men, they are not, and not all of them. Like there's definitely some fantastic co-conspirators out there who see our company and are like, oh my, like we want to work with you. You're incredible. And there are men who support us in very different ways. But um, when you intimidate men, that's, you know, another reason for them to be like, eh, I'm not sure if I want to go down this road. But for us to change means that we would then have to fit inside the box of what it's you know, what society has told us women are supposed to say and do and act like. And, and honestly, if we were designing clothing, everybody would be buying us because we'd be in our lane. Right. 
but we make hard goods and women don't make hard goods. So we're not staying in our lane. And that, that fundamentally rubs people, whether consciously or subconsciously, that becomes another barrier. Um, and, you know, and so those, I think, I think those are a lot of the, the reasons. And then, and then finally, from just sort of, once again, like a non-gendered perspective, because we haven't had access, like we literally don't hold the keys we've had to carve out our own space. And this is where like e-commerce has been wonderful for us and Instagram and these like really sort of democratic open spaces where um, you just like literally sign up and pay the same as everyone else or do, and like you have, a, you have a storefront, right? But because we're e-commerce, well now we're competing with a brick and mortar shop. And so this is where sort of like the retail side of things, if you sell direct to the customer, these specialty stores don't necessarily want to carry you because you're they're in competition. But then at the same time, there's this lack of recognition. Well, we have to sell direct because none of you will sell us. You know, like it's like the catch 22. Um, whereas other, you know, a lot of the more established ski companies who existed prior to e-commerce, you know, because this is all relatively new, they were in the queue a long time ago. And so they have those relationships and they've been working with the same reps for 20 years and they don't sell direct because they've never had to. And so we've really been forced into, you know, figuring out how to run a business in a male dominated industry where we don't hold the keys. And for all the various reasons, that's been a challenge. Yeah. And, you know, just from the consumer standpoint, and I'm going back to my silly shoe example. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, one reason it's so hard to find shoes that fit is because no one carries mm -hmm. my size. So, mm -hmm. you know, oh, we can order it for you. But what good is that? Because I have to commit to the shoe that I don't know, even know if it's going to fit. And so, right. yeah, you do need that person in the store who's going to totally fully support you and have everything right there, which is going to be mm -hmm. hard to find, I would think. Absolutely. Yeah. Um. And, you know, this brings up a thing I've been thinking about a lot is, you know, equity in the outdoors is really sort of a hot topic right now. But, mm -hmm. you know, on one hand, I'm really sad that we have to talk about this, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I love that there's women's groups, there's women's races, you know, groups for women, groups for people of color. But why are we still having to talk about this? But I'm glad that it's there. I mean, because society's slow to change and people are racist and sexist and all the other things. I mean, that's what like there and there's and like people are biased and people have implicit bias and explicit bias. And like we just live in a world where we're not equal. That's, you know, why like why we have to like we're still we're still not there yet. I mean, here's a perfect example. Um, so for as far as people think that women have come. Just a few weeks ago, I was at a summit and I was um, speaking, uh, I was having sort of like a fireside chat with a woman of color and we were talking about um, accessibility and access to the outdoors and we're having this conversation and we were even getting into sort of like hiring practices and things like that and a cisgendered white man says like, oh, there's this one company in Colorado that I love so much because the CEO um, you know, for, for you to get a job, you have to go summit a 14er, a 14,000 foot peak. You have to go summit a four, 14er with him. And I said, well, I can understand how that would allow you to understand someone's grit and their perseverance and their, their ability to overcome obstacles. But not everybody can summit a 14,000 foot peak. Now, in my mind, I was referring to people who aren't able-bodied, right? 
I wasn't referring to any sort of gender, but that's how I, I left it. After this session, he comes up to me and says, oh, I wasn't, you know, I, I know that women can do things. I wasn't saying that women couldn't summit a mountain. And then I just looked at him and said, oh, babe, I wasn't talking about women. Of course, women can summit mountains likely better than you. I was talking about people who aren't able-bodied. So when you have a hiring practice that is discriminatory based on whether or not you have the physical ability to summit a peak, we have a problem. And the fact that you think that this was only talking about gender because I'm a woman, we have a deeper problem there. And then he apologized for being like an engineer and not knowing how to speak about things. And that just happened. So like, here's this sort of, here's this person thinking that they're like contributing positively to a conversation, but they're so unaware of um, what it means to have a body that allows you to summit a peak, but then also immediately goes into like thinking that like women aren't able to do things. And this just happened. And that's why we still need to create safe spaces for women and people of color and, and any other group because at the end of the day, we just don't have time for those conversations. Um, and we need to be surrounded by people who understand us and support us. Um, and building those communities of, of support, these safe spaces are fundamentally important because not having them is just not necessarily safe for us, like emotionally safe, physically safe. And that's why we still have to have these. Do you see any changes in younger people? Like really young, because I know you're making skis now for, for girls. Yeah, I mean, I would say when when I kind of look at like society at large or what's happening, I think that younger generations are definitely perceiving gender in a very different way and even sex- sexuality and looking at how everything's more on a spectrum. Yeah, for um, sure. I, I see that being being really different, but those aren't the people who are, you know, running corporations and creating policy and controlling our media. So, you know, once a bunch of people die off, yeah, I think that we'll start seeing change. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, as long as, as you said, a really wide variety of people start getting into power and being able to make those decisions. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. So what other big issues are you seeing and hearing these days in the outdoor world? Your sort of bigger picture ideas? Yeah, well, I think in- inclusivity is a really big issue, like above and beyond gender, like to only focus on gender sort of lacks the intersectionality um, around all the various issues that affect the way that people get to exist in, in this world. So in the outdoors, in, in particular, we're seeing um, a lot of really important and robust conversations around race, um, around access um, around gender identity and sexuality and really sort of understanding that people who recreate in the outdoors are multifaceted and multidimensional and this sort of singular narrative that's been presented in terms of what does it look like or what does it mean to be somebody who loves the outdoors, that, that normalcy is being, being challenged. Um, and it's a really, there's a lot of really good conversations happening around that. And you just had a trip with Evo. Mm-hmm. What were and you had some discussions with the women that were on the trip. What did they want to talk about? Well, I'll tell you. So we actually had one person reach out who said, "I'm a trans woman, and I don't know if I'm welcome to come on this trip. Is this a safe space for me to come?" And so 
you know, I personally, without even talking to Evo, I was like, yes, come <laughs> like, yes. And then, you know, ended up speaking to Evo and we were all on the same page of like, well, you know, we made a miss by, by marketing it as a women's trip. We actually should have said like, we welcome women, trans and non-binary in, in individuals, mm-hmm. um, on, on this trip. And so, um, that was a conversation that was happening even before the trip started. And then when we were on the trip, that definitely came up because the cisgendered women were really curious about this person's experience as being a trans woman. Um, we talked about lots of other things too, um, but that was a like really productive conversation. Um, but yeah, that was that was I'd say it was like one of the highlights for me was being able to even have a, have an experience in which we could have these conversations and have it with somebody who is living that experience rather than talking about them. How did it come about that it was such an open, honest space for everybody to talk? I think, well, I think we were lucky because <laughs> I don't, we were definitely like very nervous going in, but some of the things that we did. So um, prior to the trip starting, I asked for a code of conduct to be created that everybody would have to sign the code of conduct. And it was a zero tolerance policy that if you violated the contract, you would just be asked to leave. So everybody had to sign the code of conduct, which I think set the terms for what we were expecting. Um, and then when we all got together, we went over that again in terms of like, these are our expectations for what's going to happen on, on the, on the trip. Um, and then we just had lovely people. I mean, they're just like lovely human beings who were there who, you know, just, I think that they took the code of conduct seriously. They were respectful um, and they just enjoyed one another's company. But I, we, we definitely did some work on the front end to create uh, um, the expectation of what would be tolerated and not tolerated on this trip. You talked about when the tra- transgender person originally contacted you, you said, mm-hmm. oh, you know, we should have labeled the trip as sort of broader than you did. Are you comfortable yeah. when you make those mistakes? And, and do you label them as mistakes? And, you know, I think that's one thing that, you know, is hard in these days of, you know, learning to re- reframe things is being mm-hmm. comfortable with sort of goofing. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's comfortable. Like it sucks when you realize that you failed. Like no one, no one likes to feel like, oh, I just like really fucked up. Right. And so, (laughs) um, I can't say that it feels good, but I'm also able to say like, oh, wow, we, we, we failed on that. That, that was a miss. And like, I immediately acknowledged it to this person and, and apologized. I said, I'm really, I'm really sorry. I understand why you're asking us this question because we weren't explicit about it. And we should have been explicit because our values are that, yes, you're absolutely welcome and we would hold a safe space for you. And then that's when I, you know, immediately went to Evo and said, like, we absolutely must have a code of conduct. We must hold a safe space. And they were 100% in into it. So it was a, it was a very easy easy process. And even when we were talking about future trips, we said like, we must change the language. So I wouldn't say that it's like comfortable in the sense that nobody likes to feel like you did something that hurt another person, or um, that you didn't do your job as well as you could have done it, or that you're contributing to sort of reinforcing stereotypes that aren't in line with your values, like none of those things particularly feel good. Um, 
but the right thing to do is just resolve it. And so that's like, I feel like I'm, I'm able, like I'm willing to do that. And I'm fortunate to work with people who are also able to do that. I think the worst possible thing would be, you know, to be defensive about it Mm -hmm. rather than just own the mistake. Right. I think that's a a criticism of of a lot of mistakes is the defensiveness. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I really like about you is you're so outspoken and, you know, willing to, you know, say whatever. How did you get there? My parents are New Yorkers. I don't know. (laughs) I definitely think that's part of it because I'll tell you, like, East Coasters and, like, you know, older generation East Coasters, like, they're not necessarily politically correct. They don't go into conversations needing to be liked. So I think that, like, just being raised in a home like that, where, you know, like, clearly, like, the F word was tossed around, like, it was no big deal. So um, that's part of it. I think also, you know, this just, I don't exist in this world to make other people feel comfortable, like, that's not my job. Um, And it's also not my job to be nice, you should always be kind. And being kind means that you actually say things that are very uncomfortable. And you might say things that, um, don't make other that that other people may not like you for them. So I've just made a decision that I don't need to exist with people liking me, that that's not important. And there, you know, there's plenty of people who do like me, but I don't navigate conversations or navigate podcasts or in or in interviews going into it of like, oh, I hope people really like me because that's just playing it safe. And then you don't actually ever get to talk about anything real. Um, and I just kind of have this guiding light of like, be, be kind. Um, but being kind means that you definitely are going to make people angry or they may not appreciate what it is you have to say. Cause it means that you have to be like, kind of like speak the truth. And sometimes the truth really hurts, particularly when you're talking about sort of undoing, um, like the wrongs of this world or like looking at life through a social justice perspective. Um, when you start challenging norms, um, and start challenging people who hold power, that's always tricky. And I just, I guess I just don't, I don't care what people think. And by people, I mean like people who aren't important to me. Like there's obviously people in my life who I care how they perceive me. And those are like people who are really close to me, but just sort of like people who aren't in your life. Like why, why do you care? Like, why would you care? Well, I mean, one thing that that people have said about women is that they aren't really great at accepting criticism or scrutiny, you know, always Mm -hmm. being looked at and judged and stuff like that. And so you definitely have to deal with that if you're speaking out loud. Oh, exactly. (laughs) I should, you know, like, you want to see some screenshots of the messages that I get or things that happen. I mean, you you definitely can't exist in the world the way that I do and not be criticized. But also, you can't exist in the world uh, in general without being criticized. So do you just go through life playing it safe, trying to have people like you and avoid and avoid criticism? Or do you just like show up who you are, like show up as how you are and have a strong set of values that guide you. And you have a pretty big social media presence. Mm-hmm. Have you been good at navigating that and making it how you want it? Um, I do. Yeah, I think that we... I think that we've been really good at, I would say, like staying on brand and like making sure that like we're putting things out there that feel really true to us. 
as with everything, there's a million more things that I would like to do. And um, we don't do them. I, you know, one of my challenges, for example, with um, the Instagram in particular, for coalition is that it's a heavily snow sports influenced account, right? So like we make skis and snowboards, we're posting a lot of people who are skiing and snowboarding, and our ability to find um, to find photos and to find content that represents diversity is really hard. It's really difficult. So we got a lot of white women on our page and I'm not super pumped about that. And I recognize it as a problem and we're working on it. And, um, you know, but by we, I mean me and Lauren. So like this huge, big company team of all the people, like it's just us, me and my work wife (laughs) (laughs) acknowledge this is a problem and we're trying to be better and, you know, so that would that would definitely be like one thing on social that we do need to do better on it. And we're just like constantly in the process of like trying to figure out how to do that. And and that's really like one thing that kind of led to the inception of the magazine is that we realized, you know, that they, like there's this opportunity to celebrate diversity by opening up pages to a diverse set of contributors and talking about real issues. And that was actually something that we could do by removing ourselves at some level from snow sports specifically opened up an opportunity for us to be able to create media and create images and create stories and create all these things about, um, about all these things that are important to us because we've definitely felt a little bit locked in on the snow sports side. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you brought the magazine up again. One thing I like about it is how, I mean, it is so diverse, but at the same time, you're not like, again, it goes back to wanting a safe space for everybody, but at the same time, sort of being sad that it has to be that way. So I, I guess I mm-hmm. re- really like that it, it is open, but also is not, um, I don't know what I'm saying anyway. <laughs> well, I think, no, no, well, I, I think, well, tell me if I'm wrong, but I think that maybe what you're saying is that like, you know, sometimes you can get into this and, and, and you, you talk about the problems and you talk about they like, that's all that you, you, you talk about it and it, and it can feel like you can feel like a victim in the process of, of talking about it. And what our approach with the magazine is, is like, we just have diverse contributors and then they get to talk about the things they want to talk about. Right. That, that is exactly it. And I have that yeah. with my podcast too, because I want to have a diverse group of guests, but at the same time, I don't want any time that I talk to a woman of color, that it be about being a woman of exactly. color. I want it to be about their sport or whatever activity yes. they're doing. Exactly. So. And that's what we're doing with the magazine. So, you know, um, you know, if, if you look at our con- contributors, we're not going to women of color and saying, we want you to talk about being women of color. We actually say, we got some pages. How many do you want? Okay. You know, and then, and then they talk about the things that they want to talk about, or they create the art that's important to them or write the columns. And so, so, you know, and we don't tone police. Um, and we obviously like edit for, you know, grammar and sentence structure and, and fact check and do all of that. But we kind of let people just like show up and put things on a page. And, and then we're not putting them into this box of like, oh, well, you're a black woman. So you only get to talk about issues that are related to women or to people of color or like, Oh, you're trans. So you only get to talk about trans issues. Like, like people are more um, like people are multidimensional and they have a lot of interest in how we normalize 
all of these different things is that we just let them exist. Right. Exactly. Rather than always having to like fully call it out. Right. Well, it shows in the magazine. It's really terrific. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I noticed in the back of issue number two, you talked about a future collaboration with Live Cycling. Can you talk about yeah. that? Absolutely. So Live is an amazing group of human beings and we were connected um, about a year ago and um, just, you know, sort of became like professional like peers. You know, we would talk about the industry and talk about what was happening with women. And then when the magazine came along, Live wanted to support us um, as female founders, um, as as independent um you know, like I said, independent media source, and they asked how they could support our work. And so when, you know, you, that's where sponsorship comes in, right? So, you know, we had a little feature on them in um, this issue, they were in our marketplace, and then they are actually supporting a cycling trip that I'm doing next month in Nepal. Wow. Um, and, and a lot of the, we'll be creating a lot of content from that trip in terms of like, we're hiring a female guide to come along with us. And we'll be writing a story about her as like a Nepalese woman, who's a cycling guide. And um, we'll be able, you know, obviously be taking like gorgeous photos along the ride and talking about how, you know, Julianne and Roz and I, like the three of us cycled in Africa last year together and like what these, you know, what this trip means to us. And so, you know, Liv is giving us an opportunity as three women to go to this beautiful place and have this outdoor experience um, and really bring local women into the fold. And then that will be the primary content for our fall issue. And so, you know, what I, what I really appreciate about working with, with Liv is that they're not coming to us saying, you know, you need to write about this, or we want these words to be used, or it's this angle, or we want this ad. Like, we actually are creating the content we would create anyways, and saying what it is that we would say anyways. And we have a sponsor who's who believes in us, who says, okay, we'll put our money behind that. We're going to support that because we trust you and we believe in you and you're creating something that's in line with our values too. Nice. How have you been preparing for the trip? Well, preparing for Nepal, it's it's been interesting. I'm I'm cycling a lot now that um, winter is halfway gone. Um, I've been able to get out on my bike a lot more, and so I'm trying to ride. I don't know, three to four times a week, and about thirty to fifty k for each ride. Um, but a lot of preparing for Nepal is also just mentally setting myself up for the fact that I have no idea what we're actually getting ourselves into. I mean, we we have a route and I've spoken to people about it, but I've never been there and we have no idea what actually to expect. Um, so I'm trying to remind myself that um, sometimes sufferfests are good and I should just go with it. But um, yeah, but no, I'm just, I'm cycling a lot. I'm trying to eat better. So like thinking about eating a lot of protein and other things that help my body um, build the muscle and just kind of get used to being back in the saddle because that's really the biggest thing. Right. How many uh, miles do you expect to ride every day there? Oh, it'll be the mileage will be really low. So we um, we're looking at about 75k per day. The route that we're doing is only about 400 kilometers. So in comparison to cycling across Africa, it's kind of, it's like not a big deal in terms of the distance. The difference is that we're going to have at least one really significant mountain pass to summit that I believe is at about 
13,000 feet. And, um, you know, this is where the unknowns come in is we're not really clear on the condition of that road. So we have no idea, you know, is it, is there any pavement? Is it, is it, um, dirt and what is the condition of the dirt? And so that will likely be the most difficult part of the trip is getting up and over that pass. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, so I, I likely should start riding some hills around here. I <laughs> Might help. I'll probably, I probably like this whole, you know, like 200 meters of elevation gain that I've been rocking. I probably need to look at doing something a little bit more significant right. in the next couple of weeks. Yeah. And and you said that you had a guide who's going to be there from Nepal. And, and what is what role is she going to take? Um, well, a couple things. So part of it is just being you know, trying to be a good tourist that you should support the local economy. And so hiring guides, you know, even though we, we know how to cycle and we know how to, you know, fix our own tires and fix our bikes and we have maps, like part of it is just honoring locals and, you know, like a way that they're able to make a living. So that's one reason why we're doing it. And then also we imagine that there could be some language barriers in some of the villages that we'll be staying because we, we're not going to be packing tents and sleeping bags and, and um, cookware. We're going to be staying in the, the villages and, and sorting that out as we roll in to a village. Um, and then also the route finding will be incredibly important as well because with a local guide – we should be able to get off some of the main roads and take some of the back roads through the villages. Um, so those are, you know, a couple of the main reasons why we're bringing a guide. And you mentioned supporting the local economy. I was going to ask you about food. So you're going to get all your food there, I gather. Yeah. So we likely the only the only food that we'll be bringing over will be snacks like energy bars, recovery mix. Um, instant coffee. I've been told that I better do that or else I will not be having coffee in the morning. Um, but then we're going to eat all of our meals on the road, just, you know, village to village. I get very nervous about having enough food. So I would want to bring something, I think, just for emergencies, I think. Yeah, no, you can't. I mean, we, I mean, we we've learned that you absolutely need to carry snacks. Like you need to have a couple snacks in your pack in case you get, you know, really low energy and, and you're not near a place where you can buy, buy food. But based on the, based on the map, it looks like we should be hitting villages. And then, and the other thing that we might do too is, you know, obviously like if we're, if we're in a village and don't think that we'll be going through one, say for lunch or something, we'll just buy something and carry it with, with us for, for the day. But yeah, we'll be um, definitely just eating whatever is available day to day. That's exciting though. Cool. It is exciting. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I'm also trying to ignore all the things that scare me right now. So what scares yeah. you? Um, the un I think the unknown, like I'm so comfortable in Africa, like I know Africa so well, even yesterday. So yes, I bought my plane ticket yesterday. We leave in a month. I bought my plane ticket. I couldn't get myself to buy the plane ticket because I'm like, oh, I'm i like, I don't understand, like, I don't know what the visa requirements are. And I need to look at that. And what's the airport like? And what's, the you know, all these different, all these different things that shouldn't really be a big, a big deal, but it just was this sticking point. And so I bought my plane ticket, but now, um, you know, the, I think summiting, you know, getting up and over that mountain pass is definitely intimidating. It's going to be really, really difficult. Um, 
not not understanding the level of traffic and even though I'm communicating with a lot of local people and they just say oh it's it's difficult and I'm like well difficult compared to what like is it is it more is, is there more traffic than cycling through Lusaka the capital of Zambia for example like is it worse than that or not I don't know so just not really knowing what it is that we're getting ourselves into because we don't really have anything to compare it to. We just have people telling us that it's hard, but hard in comparison to what, right? Like, of course it's hard. We're riding our bikes through Nepal. Yeah, we know it's hard, but how hard and what is hard and what can we expect? So just a lot of those little things that I'm kind of ignoring for the time being. Yeah. I sort of like doing unknown things because it does put you in that position of not knowing. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, like we're not booking any lodging. Um, you know, we're, we just are going to cycle. And when we're done cycling for that day, we're going to find a place to sleep. So there are certain things like that, that um, I think once we get there and we're in it, it's going to be really fun. And, and just, you know, so, so much of this is just about starting because you build up this story in your head of what it may or may not be. But once we get there and that day that we put everything on our bikes and we leave, like once you start, everything kind of settles in. And I need to keep reminding myself about that because it's true with so many different things that you do. Yeah, that's great advice. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Is there anything else that you want to talk about? Oh my God, like... You want to talk about um, climate change? It's real. Uh, what else? I, uh, I don't know. We have a leader who says that. it's not. It is. It's real. Um, I don't know. I'm also like looking at buying a new iPhone because I want a better camera for Nepal. Yeah. I'm scared to buy a new iPhone. I like my iPhone. I, what are you scared about? Uh, I just don't need a $1,000 phone. I know. Well, see, I, I don't want to spend a $1,000. I want... I actually need a better camera. The new phones have the double lens and you know, this isn't like, this is kind of like about my, like, like professionally, I need to be able to take better photos and to have an iPhone means that I don't actually have to have a, like a full camera that I don't actually know how to use. So that's what my, that's what I like. That's where I'm, what I'm. I know I, I started carrying a good camera. That's actually a camera, not a phone. And the photos are so much better. <laughs> than the camera. Mm -hmm. So that's when yeah. I'm wanting to take photos, I use that. Yeah. And stick yeah. with my crappy phone. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I just like one thing, like one thing in the pocket, that's it, everywhere I go. I hear so, you. <laughs> yeah. And it fits perfectly into my mountain bike, like into my cycling shorts. So when I, I'm a cyclist too. So last year I cycled across the continent of Africa. Um, and then now we're, you know, doing this trip in Nepal. And I don't wear, I mean, I do wear spandex, but I wear it like under like a button down cotton shirt and mountain bike shorts. Cause I'm just, I don't know. I'm, I've never like really gotten into like the road cycling thing, even though I, I do it now, but my mountain bike shorts have a pocket that perfectly fits my phone. And so I can actually be on my bike cycling, taking photos with one hand and video. Don't tell my mother that I'm saying this cause she already is like mortified that I'm cycling in these places. But yeah, I do it like one handed and like pull my phone out and take photos and video and it's really fun. So the iPhone fits. Yeah. Hey, I know what I would like to talk to you about a little bit is What's getting more girls out in the outdoors and sticking with it past the age of I don't know, 10 and 14 or something like that. Yeah. Um, 
I spent my 20s and my early 30s actually working in outdoor ed. So um, like on the nonprofit side and, and we worked with underserved communities. And so there were lots of different barriers for these people um, to get into the outdoors. So I have a lot of experience with that. And I think that, um, you know, whether whether they're girls or they're, um, you know, any other sort of underrepresented group, there's, you know, one thing to consider is you can't be what you can't see. I know. So how how do we get little girls to want to grow up to be, you know, guides or rock climbers or skiers or what, you know, if, if they're not seeing them as role models. And so while you can go to a crag or go to a mountain and see a lot of a lot of women out there, like media and these and just these images um, that we consume have not caught up with the reality of these experiences. And so we need to see more women, more people of color, you know, like who are actually in the media and in, in these public spaces so that people can see and like have role models and, and think to themselves, like, I want, I want to grow up to be like that. I think that that's, um, and I think that that's definitely getting better. Um, and even like Instagram is this perfect, perfect tool for that because anybody can really create there. Um, so I think that that's part of it. Um, obviously like the high cost of a lot of these sports is a barrier to entry. And one of the things that we need to do is really sort of, um, reconceptualize what it means to be an outdoor enthusiast, what it means to recreate in the outdoors, like going for a walk, you're outside, you are outside. That's being in the outdoors. Like you don't have to summit a 14,000 foot peak. You don't have to own $5,000 in, in, in gear. Right. And I think that this is kind of a, a big, a big challenge for the industry is to understand once again, like how this narrative of what it means to be in the outdoors has limited people's participation from a financial barrier to entry, to intimidation, to like literally not having the knowledge on where to go because that knowledge, like it, there's gatekeepers who, who hold it, which is a whole interesting conversation around like geotagging and things like, like that. Um, but I think that like having having people as role models that that young women can see and then also looking at like, well, how do we define outdoor experiences are are two things that could help get um, help keep young women in in the outdoors. Cool. Yeah, I yeah. agree with you. That's one thing that I've learned in the podcast is everybody I've talked to has that one person that's told them that they can do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jen, for being on the podcast. I really look forward to hearing about Nepal and also reading the next issue of Sisu. So thank you. Your work is that's, really that's motivating. Yeah. Thank oh, thank you. Yeah. I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. Sure. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Okay. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Jen Gorecki for being on the show. And thanks to you for listening. Head to hearhersports.com to find links to Sisu Magazine, Coalition Snow, and many of the other things we talked about. Hear Her Sports is focused on increasing listenership in 2019, so please tell your friends about the podcast or about one interesting little tidbit you learned to get them excited. Every week I learn something wonderful talking to these great athletes, so I hope you do as well. Please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, subscribe to the Hear Her Sports newsletter, or donate on hearhersports.com. Our theme music is by the band Goldmines, our logo by Agnes Studio. And keep listening. I'll be back in two weeks.
and there's still like so much more room for growth. There's still like, you know, even our company, like we're not the answer to it all. Like we're like moving things in the right direction, but there's a ton of work that can be done around it. Yeah. And all different um, sports. Absolutely. Women's Running Stories, where we explore the intersection between running and life. Because every woman who is committed to a running journey has a story to tell, and this is where you'll find those stories. I am host and producer Sheree Louise Turner. I'm a 53-year-old runner, and together with original music by musician and runner Cormac O'Regan, we bring these inspirational stories to life. Please join us to fuel your adventures.